Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith. Welcome to Episode 8 of 10 on the First Steps Curriculum, which is part of a Foundations of Flourishing program. This episode covers Module 7 of First Steps, entitled Introducing Self-Deceit. All of the material covered in the first five modules has been designed to prepare participants to begin developing self-awareness, to begin becoming aware of A, who and what they are, B, what they believe, and along the way, to develop C, the skills, dispositions, and knowledge needed to engage with such questions productively. Beginning with last episode, covering Module 6 and onward, we will be increasingly turning our attention to the question of the origins of our belief, examining what contributed to us believing what and as we do, and why we continue to hold these beliefs and not others. In addition, we will begin asking questions about the purpose of our belief, asking who or what is served when we adopt a particular belief and relegate or abandon another. In each of the preceding episodes, I've begun by explaining how the module material relates to the current evangelical dysfunction and why this particular material is necessary to overcome this dysfunction. This episode is in some ways the culmination of all of the previous episodes on First Steps, the point towards which they were all building. On the one hand, the content of this episode directly addresses the most problematic aspect of evangelical dysfunction, its seeming invisibility to those that participate in it. On the other hand, this episode offers the concepts needed to make sense of what may at times have appeared as conflicting statements on my part, such as when I argue that evangelical Christianity is extremely dysfunctional, while also affirming that evangelical Christianity maximizes human flourishing. And this episode also offers content to make sense of the particular approach that I take throughout the Foundations of Flourishing program. Namely, in Foundations of Flourishing, participants focus first on learning about themselves and their humanity, rather than starting with the Bible and with God. An approach that likely seems foreign, if not problematic, by typical evangelical Christian standards. To illustrate my first point about how self-deceit addresses the seeming invisibility of evangelical dysfunction to its participants, let's consider a typical difficulty that arises during the process of inventory-taking, which is the subject of Module 3. The greatest and most common difficulty that participants experience while taking inventory of their beliefs is the inclination, and indeed the compulsion, to offer what I might call automatic answers. For example, so often evangelicals offer what is thought to be the right answer when asked for their personal views or beliefs on a subject relating to Christian faith. Specifically, even when asked about their own personal views, many Christians have a very difficult time avoiding answers that they have been conditioned to tell themselves and others, based on what they have been taught represents biblical perspectives on both identity, i.e. who I am, and beliefs, in other words, what I believe. The trouble with such automatic answers is that they typically have much more to do with identifying and maintaining group status, and even membership in such a group, and often very little to do with personal identity, beliefs, and values. In other words, it's entirely possible, and in dysfunctional settings, 
entirely likely that when Christians offer, quote, the right answers, quote, automatically, they're, being, they're in fact being profoundly dishonest and even hypocritical. Nor am I describing cases where, in one-off situations, someone knows full well that she or he is concealing his or her true fe- views for fear of being criticized or rejected. Rather, I'm referring to the typical case of Christians enthusiastically and ongoingly promoting certain standard answers as their own, with little or often no consideration as to whether or to what extent they actually believe and have adopted these answers in their own lives. The topic of Module 7, Self-Deceit, helps to identify the nature of what seems to be dishonesty and explains why it is so rampant and so unidentifiable and even invisible, to those that participate in it. Regarding my second point, this episode offers concepts that help make sense of my seemingly conflicted views. When I both argue that evangelical Christianity is broadly dysfunctional, and that evangelical Christianity offers the greatest possibility for human flourishing. Specifically, the past episodes related to First Steps, Modules 1 through 6, have had a dual focus— to explain the module content while situating this content relative to the prevailing dysfunction within evangelical Christianity. Yet when explaining this dysfunction, I have not only offered strong criticism of evangelical systems or churches, but also of evangelical Christians themselves. And this despite my comment that this dysfunction is so entrenched mostly because those who embrace it are unaware that they are doing so. So this module on self-deceit helps tie together the contrasts that have marked my comments and directed my approach throughout this mini-series. So what is self-deceit? Self-deceit is the propensity to develop and maintain what can be called false consciousness, which is the belief in a reality when in fact there is none. Self-deceit is the propensity to develop and maintain what can be called false consciousness, which is the belief in a reality when in fact there is none. In other words, where the reality I believe in simply does not exist. Self-deceit powerfully impacts and indeed directs the beliefs we hold about ourselves and our motives, and about others and their motives. And because self-deceit, as the term suggests, is, well, unseen, self-deceit is not so much something that we do as something that we are. It is more a characterization of what it means to be human than a description of what a particular human might do. As such, self-deceit is not simply the ability, but the predisposition to perform sleight of hand on ourselves by substituting one reality, reality here in quotation marks, for another. Or better, self-deceit is the human predisposition to keep the reality of a given situation from ourselves in order to believe something that is more comforting, self-promoting, or more incriminating of others than the actual situation or state of affairs would allow. But wait. Self-deceit is slyer still. For its main function is not to elevate our own self-image while debasing that of others, or simply to allow us to think better of ourselves than we ought. No. Skewing reality in our favor is only a smokescreen, to facilitate the deeper purpose of self-deceit, to allow us covertly to get away with behaviors and views that, overtly, we claim to reject and stand against. To repeat that, the deeper purpose of self-deceit is to allow us covertly 
to get away with behaviors and views that, overtly, we claim to reject and stand against. And most worryingly of all, because self-deceit is not simply a human action but a human characteristic, it is something that all of us are involved in and that can arise in any context or setting. Now, a couple of things need to be mentioned. First, it is important to understand what self-deceit is not. Second, it is important to understand why self-deceit is so entrenched. And third, it is important to understand where self-deceit is likely to occur and why. On the first point, self-deceit is different from error or ignorance in the epistemological sense and different from dishonesty in the moral sense, although it is related to each of these. Or where ignorance and dishonesty are involved, it is ignorance and dishonesty about the basic notion that humans are capable of deceiving themselves. More on this later, and particularly the next session. In fact, self-deceit is related to or impacts a number of human attributes. Examples include knowledge and knowing, the role of the emotions and imagination, neurology and the concept of the unconscious, memory and memory reconsolidation, and self-understanding and identity formation, to name a few. For instance, self-deceit can affect our beliefs about what and how we know. Similarly, self-deceit can impact our faculties and virtues. For instance, creativity and imagination act in the service of self-deceit in the alternate stories or narratives that we create and tell others and ourselves about why we act or don't act in particular ways, why our view of a given matter is correct, and other views must be wrong, etc. So self-deceit is not error, ignorance, or dishonesty, but instead co-ops our faculties and our virtues in order to support the false consciousness that it creates. Yet there is more. And this is my second point. Self-deceit is also self-perpetuating, and as such, self-defending. This is because self-deceit is not simply an instinct or a reflex, but is something that we use albeit on an unconscious level, both to enhance our identity and to grant us prohibited pleasures. Or better, self-deceit allows us to promote a view of ourselves as the person we want to be, while gaining all the benefits of doing the things we claim to stand against, and yet never being held responsible for doing them. In a very real way, self-deceit allows me to have my cake and eat it too, so because self-deceit both enhances my identity and permits me the pleasure of pro prohibited behavior, I not only act to deceive myself as to the truth of a given situation, but I ongoingly act to perpetuate this deception. Yet because self-deceit means that I am acting contrary to my own morality, I naturally act, again in a covert and even unconscious manner, to defend and protect my false consciousness from discovery, particularly from and by myself. In other words, self-deceit is so hard to come to terms with because it is so satisfying, and on two crucial levels. First, self-deceit allows me to perceive myself as being better than I am, more trustworthy, honest, or caring, more powerful, important, or respected. Second, self-deceit not only elevates my self-perception, but does so as a smokescreen in order to allow me to do and enjoy the very things that I disavow as illicit, inappropriate, or unworthy, and never be held responsible for doing them. My third point is partly present in the above points, about the entrenched nature of self-deceit. That is, the function of self-deceit is to enhance my identity, 
by allowing me to see and promote myself as being better than I am, while bypassing my morality, by allowing me to enjoy and or benefit from the things I claim to disavow. So I need to add a clarification to the comment that I made earlier, namely that self-deceit can arise in any context or setting. While this is technically the case, this is not to say that people are equally self-deceived in all contexts and situations, or even that any given situation is as likely as any other to stimulate self-deceitful behavior. Instead, self-deceit is most prevalent in those areas of my life that are most formative of my identity and most essential to my morality. I'll repeat that. Self-deceit is most prevalent in those areas of my life that are most formative of my identity and most essential for my morality. When self-deceit is framed in this way, it becomes very easy to imagine how religious contexts can be rampant with self-deceit. This is because religious belief makes significant claims relative to the identity and morality of its adherents. Now, such claims of themselves are not necessarily problematic. Yet by their nature, they are especially open to the abuses of self-deceit. And the more one's religious beliefs are naive and unexamined, the more this is the case. For when the hallmark of belief is uncritical acceptance, this creates an ideal context for the growth of something covert and elusive, such as self-deceit. Further, self-deceit in such contexts is not typically reactive, such as reacting deceitfully, when our religious beliefs themselves, or our reasons for holding them, or our manner of manifesting them, are threatened challenged, or just questioned. Rather, in such contexts, self-deceit is often very proactive when it comes to beliefs. It is our reason for adopting a belief at all. In other words, given their impact on identity and morality, belief systems lend themselves to instrumental uses by human beings, in the sense that we come to believe things because they make us feel secure, or better about ourselves, or release us from challenging responsibilities or allow us to concentrate on our real priorities, or justify us in accusing those who disagree with or mistreat us. In other words, because self-deceit is an unavoidable human characteristic, and because religious beliefs are so closely tied to identity and morality, and naive, unexamined religious beliefs foster the growth of the covert and elusive, for all these reasons, human beings are apt to use religious beliefs to their own ends. So we tend to believe things not because they are true, but because they are useful, with an aim not of serving God or others, but of serving ourselves. As a result, Christians are often reluctant to modify or even examine our existing beliefs, not because we are persuaded that they are more truthful than other beliefs, but because we are afraid of what will be revealed about us as believers if we do so. Namely, Honestly examining our beliefs will show that we are not the people that we claim to be. It will show that we value usefulness or pragmatism and not truth. It will show that our greatest desire is extreme selfishness or narcissism and not love of God or proper love of self or other. Modifying or examining our existing beliefs risks revealing, via the most damning of evidence, that we are Christians with our mouths only and not with our actions or with our hearts. And that's a pretty big risk. Now, some of you who are Christians might be thinking, this is the most outlandish conspiracy theory possible. Where's the evidence? Where are the examples? 
and wherever in the Bible is self-deceit mentioned. In the next podcast, I offer a number of examples of self-deceit in evangelical church and Christian settings and connect these examples with the prevailing dysfunction in evangelical Christianity. Then, in subsequent podcasts, I explain how to identify and mitigate self-deceit, as well as how the material of Foundations of Flourishing has been designed to address this very issue. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.